Well, good morning. I don't know about you, but it excites me to know that we serve a risen Savior and that Jesus is alive. Can you say amen? Amen. Amen. He lives. He lives. And so this is a song that hopefully you all know. And my prayer and my heart for you today is that if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that before today ends, you will know him. Listen to these words and worship with me as I sing, He Lives.
Thank you so much, Jennifer and ladies, for blessing us with that. Open your Bibles this morning, please, to the book of Revelation again, Revelation chapter 4. And we're beginning part two. And if you're wondering how many parts there are in this study, well, this is part two in the final part. So uh, we're going to launch in today uh, the rest of Revelation, beginning at chapter four uh, through the end of the book. And I will tell you that we're going to be uh, picking up the pace. You know, in the first part, we took our time and we methodically went through the first three chapters and we looked at what God had there. And uh, we took our time looking at the messages to the seven churches. Uh, But here for the rest of our study, we're going to pick up the pace and give you a broad, uh, big overview and uh, try to see what the Lord has for us here in this book. Revelation uh, chapter four, find your spot there and you might want to get something to jot down a few notes and references. And I'll give you a chart in a moment you might want to draw out and so forth. And so I encourage you uh, to get prepared in that way. Revelation chapter four. I understand some parents took their little boy to the pet shop. For his birthday, by the way, that's a dangerous thing to do unless you're planning on getting a pet. Uh, but they took the little boy to the pet shop on his birthday and they were going to allow him to pick out any dog that he wanted. Now, those are some nice parents, aren't they? Any dog uh, that you want, you can pick out. And so the shop owner, I'm sure, excitedly showed the boy every type of dog imaginable. But the boy ended up picking the one who wagged his tail nonstop. Well, everybody was interested and and wondering. And so he said to the little boy, why'd you pick that dog? And the little boy said, because I want the one with the happy ending. (laughs) We all want a happy ending, don't we? Uh, We all want the, the end to be happy and great. And do you think that's why so many people are fascinated with the place called heaven? They want to know more about this wonderful place. And by the way, I think the fascination with heaven is a wonderful thing. In fact, I believe it should be more than a mere fascination. It should become a longing for heaven, a desire for heaven, an anticipation for heaven. But the problem we have, beloved, is the only true and accurate and reliable source that we have. For information and truth about heaven is found in the Bible, God's holy word. Uh, We know there are lots of people who claim to have gone to heaven. They've returned to earth and written books and told stories or they've had visions of heaven and so forth. And while we know that these people, they've had some sort of experience, we won't deny that unless they're outright lying. They've had some sort of experience. Uh, That's not enough for us to build a doctrine of heaven Or to say, well, that's absolutely certain. We have to bank on the word of God. Uh, We can't build our understanding of heaven upon visions or dreams or uh, visits to heaven. We have to build it upon the word of God. We need the infallible, inerrant, authoritative uh, word of God. And we need to study the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about heaven. Billy Graham said that uh, Jesus mentions heaven about 70 times in the book of Matthew alone. He said, in fact, 54 of the 66 books that make up the Bible mention heaven. And he added the same warning I've given you this morning. Remember, the Bible is our only authoritative source for information about heaven. And so this morning, as we begin part two and the final part of our study of Revelation, we find that we get to take a trip to heaven and not only to heaven, but into the very throne room of God. John MacArthur said the Bible refers to heaven more than 500 times. 
And other people like Paul and 2 Corinthians 12 and Ezekiel and Ezekiel 1 have written descriptions of it. But John MacArthur said that John's words in Revelation 4, today's passage, and Revelation 5, next Sunday's passage, are the most informative in all of Scripture. So find your place in Revelation chapter 4 and get ready for the journey. Now, while you're getting that all ready to go, I need to take a moment and bring you up to speed and refresh you concerning where we are in our study. We've got to review and get our bearings because Christmas is coming. New Year's is coming. So we've covered 10 messages already in this book. And I want to kind of let you know where we are uh, in this book. Now, we're at chapter four this morning. And our understanding of Scripture from chapter four through the end, all of this is future. All of this is prophecy. These are things that are going to happen. And that's why I've called this series Fast Forward. Kind of like you can on your DVD player, you can push the fast forward button and go to the end. We're allowed in the book of Revelation to fast forward to the end of time and even into future and eternity and see what's going to happen. Now, for those of us that were here at the uh, part one for the study, you may remember that I gave you a simple outline of the book. And in fact, Revelation itself gives us an outline in chapter one, verse 19. It gives its own outline. If you'll notice, it says, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Revelation chapter one, verse 19. And so if you ever get lost and wonder, where am I in the book? You can go back to the outline there in Revelation chapter one, verse 19. And here's how it breaks down. The things which you have seen is chapter one. That's the glorified vision of the Lord, of the vision of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. The things which you have seen, the things which are those things going on. That's chapters two and three. And then notice the third point, the things which will take place after this. That's chapters four through twenty two. And so these are things that are going to happen after the church age. Uh, things that are going to happen in the future. Now, you remember that John, the writer of this book, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's on the island of Patmos and he's not there for a vacation. Uh, he's not at the uh, the apostles retirement home. He's there as a prisoner. You may remember I told you that it was the Alcatraz of its day. And so he's there on the island of Patmos facing trouble, facing problems. The other believers during his time were also facing troubles. We studied the messages to the seven churches and all that was going on there. And now he's about to be told about some serious trouble, uh, world shaking trouble that's going to come upon lost humanity. The great tribulation time. And he's going to see some things that could literally rock your world. So in the midst of this trouble upon trouble upon trouble, God here in chapters four and five gives John a vision that will make a huge difference in his life. John is going to be escorted in the spirit to the very throne room of God. And he'll see for himself, you know, he's facing trouble. The people are facing trouble. The world's going to be facing trouble. He's going to see for himself before all that's unveiled, before all that's revealed. He's going to see with his very own eyes that God is still on the throne. God is still sovereign. God still rules and God still reigns and God is still in charge and God is completely in control. And I wonder, Christian. Do you realize that this morning we look around our world, it seems that all everything's gone wrong and everything's going wrong. 
and all kinds of evils abounding. And we look around and get discouraged and downhearted and downcast and say, what in the world? Listen, God is still on the throne. He's still sovereign. He's still ruling and reigning. And God is in charge. Don't ever forget that, dear Christian. On your worst day, on your worst day multiplied by a hundred thousand, when things are as bad as they can get, remember to look up. God is still on the throne. We're going to study the whole chapter today. But to get started, let's see what God says in his word about his throne. I want to ask you, we're going to read just the first eight verses and then we'll study the rest here a little bit later. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? I'll ask you to read it with me there. As we read this passage, we'll have a quick prayer and then we'll jump in and see what we can learn concerning God's throne and God on the throne. Let's read it together. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed with white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And now God bless your word to our hearts. May we respond in faith as you work in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. Thank you. Notice the passage starts out by saying, after these things. There's an obvious transition here where it says, after these things. After what things? After the church age. As I understand it, the church has been raptured in between chapter 3 and chapter 4. Now, some people believe the church is raptured there in the first verse. But I think that's kind of stretching a little bit because it says that John in the spirit was taken into the throne room of God. But I believe, as I understand it, the church is raptured up. They're taken home to be with the Lord uh, in between chapters 3 and chapter 4. In fact, the word church, that word has appeared over and over again in our study, hasn't it? Seven messages of the churches. The word church will not appear again in the book of Revelation until we get to chapter 22, verse 16. You won't read the word church anymore. I believe the Bible's clear. And this is a totally different message and a separate message. But I believe the Bible's totally clear that we're going home. The church is going home before the tribulation, before the trouble, before the wrath of God is poured out here upon the earth. Now, I put a simple outline together for you of uh, the future. 
And I want to give this to you. And I want to just tell you before I show it to you. Don't feel like you have to master this this morning. I don't want you to get discouraged. Well, I can't remember all the points. I may, I probably even print out a copy of this and give it to you next week. So if you come back next week, I'll try to have a paper copy of this for you. And I didn't include everything I could include on this little chart. But it gives you the big picture of what's going to take place and what the Bible teaches and what the Bible says. So I left some things off. I don't have on here the great white throne judgment. I don't have on here the judgment seat of Christ or the battle of Armageddon. I just have some of the big main things. And it's a very simple chart. If I could put it together, you can draw it out if you'd like. If you don't feel like drawing, I'll have a copy for you, God willing, next week. But take a look at this overview of future events. This overview of future events. Now, you have here the Old Testament times, the time before the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all understand that part, right? Then we have the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, he had his death and his burial. And then we have the empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then, as I understand Scripture, the day of Pentecost, you have the birth of the church. And so we're living in what's called the church age. That's now. That's where we live. That's us. We're in the church age. Now, the next great event... In Bible prophecy, what the Bible teaches is something called the rapture, to be caught up. The Lord's coming will meet him in the air. The dead in Christ will rise first. Those of us who are alive and raised will be caught up with him and we'll go to be with the Lord. And I didn't put on the chart, but there's a judgment seat of Christ, rewards and so forth. But then we have probably perhaps a short period of time that will take place here upon the earth between the rapture of the church and the tribulation time. But you'll have the tribulation period, a total of seven years, three and a half years and three and a half years, which will take place. Now, we're with the Lord. We're in heaven. And then at the end of the tribulation period, the Lord Jesus Christ will come again in his second coming. And so you have the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm leaving out a lot. Obviously, this is the big picture. okay? and then we have eventually the millennium thousand year rule and reign, other things. And then we have eternity. And so that's kind of a big picture, if you will, of where we are and what the Bible teaches concerning prophecy. Now, here's a prettier version of it uh, from David Jeremiah. It has a few more details if you want to look at that for a moment. But we want to keep that in mind. And I'm going to give you a copy of that. And you can have that and keep it as we study the uh, one I just showed you, the black and white one. I'll try to have a copy of that for you next week. But... Don't feel like you get discouraged because, listen, I've been blessed to have Bible college classes on Revelation. I've had graduate level classes on Revelation. I've taught Revelation and I still learn things every time I study because the Bible is inexhaustible, beloved. And, and, and my mind's weak. And uh, I, I can't. In fact, I studied this past week and I thought I, I never thought about that. And so listen, we're growing together, but I want you to kind of get the big picture and kind of know where we are. We're in the church age. Nothing else has to happen for the rapture to take place. Keep that in mind. Nothing. So what about the signs of the times and all? That's talking about the second coming of Christ. That's about the signs. But before you have the second coming of Christ, at least seven years, maybe a little bit longer, if there's some preparation time there, you have the rapture. So we're not looking today for the second coming of Christ. We're looking for the rapture. We're looking for Christ to come and get us, okay, and meet him in the air and go home to be with him. And then later his second coming will take place. Well, let's go this morning and get back here to the throne of God. And I want to try to paint this picture for you. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be real short and and, not short in time. (laughs) I'm going to be real short and come up short. I mean, when it comes to painting this picture. 
How do you describe the throne room of God? How do you adequately describe that? John struggles here. But I'm going to use what the scripture teaches us here and talk to you about the throne of God. And it tells us what's, uh, who's on the throne, what's around the throne, before the throne, and what's coming from the throne. And so let's kind of go through this passage together if we can, beloved. And first of all, consider who's on the throne. Now, obviously, we're talking about the throne of God. So the one on the throne is God. Uh, God is on his throne. God is sovereign. And John describes it there in verse three using precious stones. He mentions Jasper and Sardius. Uh, Jasper is a clear gem. Uh, Sardin is red. The Lord is robed in light there. Uh, the Jasper and the Sardius throne were found in the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Testament, Exodus 28, 70 to 21. And so John here cannot fully describe. How do you humanly describe God on the throne? And so he uses these precious stones. And he says there in verse three, he who sat there was like a Jasper and a Sardius stone in appearance. And so he's, I think, struggling now, a lot of commentators, a lot of people who write Revelation, they're going to take all these things that were told and they'll make them mean something. They say, well, oh, well, the Jasper means this and the Sardius means that and this represents that and this represents that and so forth and so on. And somebody else, oh, no, it represents this. And no, rep- here, I'm just going to be honest with you. We're not told here. We're just told that God is there in glorious light described as precious stones like Jasper, a clear stone, maybe crystal like or diamond like uh, this sardine is red. Some say that represents this. I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to tell you what John says. Can I just go ahead and burst everybody's bubble? We're going to study the book of Revelation and we're still going to walk away with a lot of questions that we're not going to be able to settle. But we can get settled on a couple of things that are very important. God is still on his throne. Jesus Christ is coming back to get us. And God wins. Okay? Keep all that in mind. Now, all the other stuff, we'll, we'll try to figure it out together. But even the wisest people far greater than my intellect and my ability, and even maybe our combined ability today, wrestle with these things. So we know that on the throne is God. So get that down. And John says, listen, when I looked at the throne, uh, it was as the appearance of Jasper and a sardius stone. And he's robed there and light, if you will. And then around the throne, he says there's an emerald like rainbow. Verse three. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And so this emerald like rainbow. Now, we know that a rainbow was given in the Old Testament to Noah as a promise, right? That God would never again flood the entire earth. Genesis chapter nine, verse 16. So perhaps this rainbow that encircles the throne of God is a reminder that God is a promise keeping Covenant keeping God. But again, we're not told for certain. We just know that when John looked at that throne, he saw God, as it were, like a Sardius and Jasper throne and uh, or, or light of stone. And then he saw this emerald like rainbow. And then as he keeps looking there around the throne, he finds 24 more thrones with 24 elders. Verse four around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones. I saw 24 elders. Sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, again, you go start studying what the commentators and Bible scholars write on all this. There's all kinds of ideas about who these elders are. 
There are those who say, well, these elders are elders that represent the church because we believe the church has been raptured at this point. They're in heaven with the Lord. And so these are 24 representatives from the church. Others say, no, 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 no. That's not it. These 24 elders are angelic beings that God has placed upon these thrones. And so you have 24 angelic beings. Others say, no, that's not right. They say, actually, what you have is a combination. You have 12 Old Testament saints. You have 12 New Testament saints. And you have a combination of people. But here's what we actually know for certain. There are 24 elders on 24 thrones with white robes and crowns on their head. Now, I can tell you who I think they are, but we're not told for certain, are we? But as John sees the throne of God, he's telling us what he sees. All the rest of it's conjecture. What I want to do here is state what the Bible states clearly. While we can conjecture, let's remember it's conjecture. I personally believe we have New Testament saints here. But again, that's just conjecture. Now, around the throne, you have an emerald-like rainbow, 24 thrones, 24 elders. And then you have four living creatures. And here's where we really begin to scratch our heads and say, what in the world? Look at verse uh, 6. Right after it says, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Now, think about that. Only creature you knew I had that was your mama, right? I got eyes in the back of my head. (laughs) She had eyes in the front and the back. But these creatures, uh, they have eyes in the front and the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. So they're covered in eyes. And they do not rest day or night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, quite frankly, when we think about these creatures, these uh, created beings, we kind of see them as weird, uh, maybe even scary. Uh, But nothing could be further from the truth. They're actually very special, highly privileged, angelic beings that have the awesome responsibility to minister in the very throne room of God. In fact, they're the closest to the throne, aren't they? In the midst and around it. And they do not cease worshiping and praising God. And so I don't want you to say, well, that's so weird. It sounds like something I might see in the movies or whatever. Listen, it's not weird. It's wonderful. Even though we can't kind of picture it in our minds, they sound a lot like the cherubim that Ezekiel saw and the seraphim that Isaiah saw. I'll give you those passages in a moment. But let me just say something here. Revelation is the last book of the Bible, right? For whatever reason, a lot of people want to start at the last part of the Bible. Can I encourage you when it comes to learning the word of God to begin in the beginning? Either the beginning of the New Testament, the beginning of the Old Testament. You're going to find as we study that a knowledge of the Old Testament is going to help us to understand the New Testament. And a knowledge of the Old Testament and the New Testament will understand what Revelation says. Ezekiel describes uh, some angelic beings. Look at this with me. Ezekiel 1, 1 and 5 through 13. Now, it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Kibar, that the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. So just like John, the heavens open for John, the heavens open for Ezekiel. Verse 5. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. 
They had the likeness of a man. And he says each one had four faces and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calf's feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides. And each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. Also, or as for the likeness of their faces, each one had the face of a man. Each one had uh, each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side. And each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces. Their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of each one touched one another and two covered uh, their bodies. And each one went straight forward. They went wherever the spirit wanted to go and they did not turn when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright and out of the fire went lightning. And you say, look at that. That's very similar to what we see in Revelation, isn't it? You say, wait a minute, though. Why do they have six wings and then four wings and one face and four? Well, listen, it's, it could be whatever angle they're seeing it at. And it could be they're, they're just overwhelmed with this. And how do you process if one of these creatures walked in this morning? First of all, I have extra funerals to do this week. Uh, But, you know, they're they're taking in a heavenly vision. But do you see the similarities between what Ezekiel says and what um, John says? The cherubim. Now, it sounds also a lot like what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter six, talking about the seraphim. Isaiah six, one through four. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So he's in the throne room. High and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. So maybe the one didn't describe the one covered the feet or whatever. Verse three. And one cried to another and said, what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And so we see that these living creatures here that are around the throne sound a whole lot like what Ezekiel saw and sounds a whole lot like what uh, Isaiah saw. And these living creatures are not weird and they're not scary, per se. They're wonderfully made creatures who are privileged to serve and minister and worship God nonstop. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. So we have God on the throne. Around the throne, we've got an emerald-like rainbow, 24 elders on 24 thrones, and four living creatures. Now, what's before the throne? Well, the Bible says before the throne are seven lamps, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, beloved, we know there's only one Holy Spirit, but this phrase has appeared before. And we believe it, it applies there, and it means the sevenfold way that Holy Spirit is described in Isaiah 11.2. Isaiah 11.2 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit. And they're burning, as you will, as torches before the throne. And then there's a crystal-like sea of glass before the throne of God. 
probably reflecting all these wonderful things. Imagine all that's going on on the throne and around the throne being reflected back off this crystal-like sea of glass. And again, commentators will wax eloquent about the labor in the Old Testament and this and that and yonder. Again, all we're told is it's a crystal-like sea of glass. So we have on the throne, around the throne, before the throne. Now we have from the throne. What happened? What came from the throne? Lightnings and thunderings and voices, or some translations have it, rumblings. And it was interesting because Isaiah talked about the voice speaking and the place shaking. And so can you kind of, in your mind's eye, get a bit of the glory of all this? It's beyond, it's beyond our comprehension. It's beyond us. But it's awesome as you look at the very throne room of God and all that's going on there. What a glorious display. But listen, don't get so caught up with what's going on around the throne that you miss the one on the throne. And you miss what's going on because judgment is coming in this book. The tribulation's coming. And here's what's awesome about it, beloved. Before the wrath of God is unleashed, the glory of God is displayed. The wrath of God is coming. But before the wrath, the very glory of God is on display. And a reminder to John and the believers and everybody else that God is still on his throne. Make no mistake about it. God is on his throne and sovereignly ruling. Now, here's the question. How do we respond to all this? What do we do? We go out to lunch today and say, man, those creatures sounded so weird. The preacher was talking about this morning. Can you imagine saying that thing? Hand me some more chicken. I mean, is that what we do with this? Well, I think the response we should have is here in the book, because we notice the rest of the chapter. It says in verse nine, whenever the living creatures, those angelic beings, give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and what? Worship him who lives forever and ever. And cast their crowns. By the way, the reason I believe these are believers is because they're robed in white and they're wearing crowns. I think the judgment seat of Christ has already taken place. They've been crowned. They've been given rewards. And they cast those crowns at his feet before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. The response we find here is a response of worship. What you should take away, I believe, from chapter four is a heart filled with worship. All hell is about to break loose on the earth. But those who are in the very throne room of God, they're not wringing their hands in despair. They're not worried. They're not fretting. They're enraptured. They're, they're occupied, consumed with worshiping the one who sits upon the throne. The one who is the creator. And I find it interesting. Creation is mentioned in Genesis 1-1, which you learned today. And here it's mentioned again in Revelation chapter 4. That he's the one that created. And by your will they exist and they were created and they hold together. The creator, the sustainer, the one worthy of glory and honor and power and things. And as I wrestle with this passage this week. And I look for a takeaway. I said, what can be the takeaway? Lord, what do you want me to leave with the people today? What's our takeaway? What's our Monday morning takeaway? What's Tuesday's takeaway? What do we do with this all? Well, here's what I came up with. When you consider that God is sovereign. When you consider that God is in control. When you consider that God is still on the throne. 
when you consider that God is in charge, I don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. What we need to do is we need to worship. And here's the takeaway from Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and next Sunday. It's this. Don't worry. Worship. Don't worry. God is on the throne. God is in charge. God is the one who created you. God is the one who sustains you. And God is the one who will take care of you. I love this to the artist. The Lord Jesus is the one altogether lovely. To the architect, he's the chief cornerstone. To the baker, he is the living bread. To the banker, he is the hidden treasure. To the biologist, he is the life. To the builder, he is the sure foundation. To the carpenter, he is the door. To the doctor, he is the great physician. To the educator, he is the great teacher. To the engineer, he is the new and living way. To the farmer, he is the sower and the Lord of the harvest. To the florist, he is the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. To the geologist, he is the rock of ages. To the horticulturalist, he is the true vine. To the judge, he is the righteous judge and judge of all men. To the juror, he is the faithful and true witness. To the jeweler, he is the pearl of great price. To the lawyer, he is the counselor, the lawgiver and the advocate. To the newspaper man, he is the good news of great joy. To the philanthropist, he is the unspeakable gift. To the philosopher, he is the wisdom of God. To the preacher, he is the word of God. To the sculptor, he is the living stone. To the servant, he is the good master. To the statesman, he is the desire of all nations. To the student, he is the incarnate truth. To the theologian, he is the author and finisher of our faith. To the labor, he is the giver of rest. To the sinner, he is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And to the Christian, he is the Son of the living God, the Savior, the Redeemer and Lord. Amen and amen. amen. Don't worry, worship. You say, I don't, you don't know what I'm facing, preacher. No, but God does. You say, well, you can't help me. And you can't uh, enable me. Listen, the Bible says in Philippians 4, 6 and 7, don't worry about anything. We don't like that, do we? We like to worry at times. But the Bible says, don't worry about anything. Instead, what? Pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So I say today, beloved, we don't need to worry. We need to worship. We need to turn our attention away from our problems and our issues and our perplexities and our troubles and look up. See, God You're still on the throne. You're in charge. You're my sustainer. God, you created me. What is this to you, oh God? You're greater than this. You're greater than this problem. There's no need to worry. We need to worship. But listen, I cannot close without saying this. Those of you who do not know God. And do not have the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior. You ought to be filled with anxiousness. Man, you ought to be worried. You face an uncertain future here without God. And you face hellfire afterward. The Bible says you live under condemnation. You're condemned already. But you can escape. Because God has made the way. The Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ will forgive you and pardon you and cleanse you. 
He took your sin upon himself at the cross. If you'll turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, he will save you. He'll make you a child of God. He wants to have a relationship with you. And he will do that if you'll come to Christ today. A Christian, what are you facing today? What problem? What fear? What uncertainty? What issue? What financial problem? Physical problem? Relational problem? Family problem? What are you going to do with that problem? Are you going to worry about it? Are you going to fret about it? Are you going to take it to Jesus? You say, Lord, I'm going to worship you. Here it is. I'm going to pray. I give it to you, Lord. Please remember, God is still on his throne. He's still in charge. And so I say to you, beloved, today, on the authority of the word of God, don't worry. Worship. Worship. And then worship some more. Father, we stand struggling as we look at this awesome picture of you on your throne. Lord, there's so much we don't understand, but we understand clearly that you alone are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. We understand clearly that you are sovereign. We understand clearly that you're in charge. We understand clearly that we can trust you. Now, Father, if there's anybody here today who's never received the Lord Jesus Christ, may, be, may this be the hour they turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, for the many that are here today who've already done that, but they're facing some things, would you help each one of us To turn our worry into worship. To take these needs and give them to you. And trust you. Because you are able and willing and longing to help us. So, Father, may we keep our eyes upon you. And may we worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. I thought the appropriate closing hymn this morning would be number three. We usually sing this as an opening hymn, perhaps. But today, a closing invitation hymn, worthy of worship, worthy of praise. Number three, you need to know Jesus today. I would invite you to come. I'll be standing right down front. I'd love to share Christ with you. But the majority of the message today was for believers. So maybe whatever it is that you're carrying today, why don't you bring it to this altar and spend some time in worship? And spend some time giving that need to God. Let's stand and sing number three, worthy of worship, worthy of praise.